Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org slash daily. Ontario kids have been away from their classrooms, friends, extracurricular activities, camps, and the rest of it for months now. And with the new school year beginning and no vaccine yet, it's all becoming something like a new normal. Here to help us understand the emotional toll it's taking on children and youth, we welcome, in Hamilton, Ontario, Dr. Andrea Gonzalez, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at McMaster University and the lead author of the Ontario Parent Survey. In the provincial capital, Dr. Ronald Cohn, President and CEO of the Hospital for Sick Children and a Professor in Pediatrics and Molecular Genetics at the University of Toronto. And Dr. Peter Zatmary, Chief of the Child and Youth Mental Health Collaborative between CAMH, that's the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, Sick Kids, and the U of T, and we are delighted to welcome you three to TVO tonight for an important conversation on just how well the kids are doing. All of your institutions, of course, immediately launched big research projects to study the effects of this pandemic and the lockdown on kids' mental health. And so we want to get a better understanding over the next half hour or so of how much impact this is having in the life of a kid. Andrea, you, um, well, you've got the Ontario Parent Survey going. How big is it? Who's been taking it? Fill us in on some of those details, if you would. Yeah, thank you, Steve. So this was a web-based crowdsourcing survey that was launched at the beginning of May until mid-June to caregivers of children ages 0 to 17, and we offered it in both uh, English and French. Um, And we ended up getting an an amazing response, largely thanks to our partners, because this was shared widely through public health units and child and youth mental health agencies and various school boards across the province. And we ended up with over 7,000 caregivers who responded to the survey that represents over 14,000 children in Ontario. And I don't know the demographics of this, but is that an adequate number to give you a very good understanding of the way things are out there? It's a province, after all, of 14 million people. So how do the numbers stack up? Yeah, I think I think it does give us a good um, idea. It was a lot more than we were expecting to actually get. I think one of the sort of caveats to go along with this type of survey is because it was a crowdsourcing survey, so it was... Um, anybody who's decided to fill out the survey online. It's not necessarily representative of the general population, but it still uh, represents a large number of caregivers, I think, and, and children in Ontario. Well, let's put one graphic up here and share a couple of the numbers that you got from the survey. Sheldon, I'm on the top of page two here. Graphic number one, thank you. There we go. Uh, 40% of caregivers reported deterioration in their children's behavior or mood, and 32% reported needing assistance with their children's behavior and or mood during the pandemic. Uh, Was there any elaboration on that, uh, Andrea? Let's start there. Yeah, so we we didn't ask really specific questions about the individual child. We were asking more about were there social-emotional difficulties, behavioral problems, or learning difficulties. 
um, that the children had within the last six months. And then we also asked a question about really any child, uh, well, they could list any of their six children, up to six children, and whether or not the child's or children's behavior had changed uh, and mood had changed since the start of the pandemic. And the options were that it had improved or had stayed the same or was worse off. And it was about 40% uh, of caregivers that were indicating that there was their, their children were actually worse off since the pandemic started in terms of their behavior and mood. Dr. Ronald Cohn, I, I, I guess I should ask you off the top what I should call you because, um, you know, when you appear on TVO Kids, you're Dr. Ronnie, but this is not a TVO Kids show. So uh, should I just call you Ronald or Dr. Cohn or what do you want me to call you? Ronnie is just fine. <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. But anyway, uh, are the findings we just heard from Andrea consistent with what you're seeing at Sick Kids? Yes, it is confirming some of our preliminary findings we have seen, and it's also in line with the Chindra Mental Health Ontario survey that has found similar numbers. And it's really pointing towards that children, by and large, have been the unheard voices of this pandemic and that we need to be careful not to significantly underestimate the impact this has on children, really of all socioeconomic uh, classes, but particularly the ones who are coming from the vulnerable living and family conditions. And we are seeing very similar results and, and, and trying to address them as much as possible. Well, and we'll pursue that in a moment. Peter, how about you? What are you seeing at your end of the thing? Um, well, I, I certainly agree with both Ronnie and uh, Andrea. And uh, I want to emphasize two points. One is a really concerning statistic is that there's an increase in suicidal ideation um, as well. And these deterior this deterioration in mental health is across the board, whether we're talking about anxiety, depression, irritability, or whatever. And I'll make one other point is that there is a sub, I don't know if Andrea found this in her survey, but there is a subgroup of kids who actually have done better. In other words, their mental health is improved because they're not at school, we think. And school is a stressful environment for some kids. And while this might be a short-term relief, in the long term, I'm worried about the consequences of that uh, in terms of them being able to cope with stressful situations in general. Interesting. Okay, a couple things I've got to follow up there. First of all, are you seeing, Peter, are you seeing families for the first time experiencing suicidal ideation or mental health issues that pre-pandemic you might not have had to deal with? So in a word, yes, although I'll qualify it that the quality of the data aren't great because we don't have pre-pandemic surveys as of yet, we should hopefully, but yes, parents and kids are reporting a sort of new onset of mental health distress, including suicidal ideation. You know, bottom line is we have a mental health crisis as well as an infectious uh, as well as an infectious disease crisis here. Hmm. Now, Andrea, let me follow up on that other angle, which is, uh, did you find that in your survey that there actually is a chunk of kids out there who are doing better because school for them is too much pressure, too much intensity, too much bullying, too much whatever? <clears throat> yes, we did. We found it was about 12% of children that parents were reporting were doing, uh, uh, like actually doing better since 
the pandemic had started. And I think it's for exactly the kinds of reasons that um, Peter mentioned. And we had some open-ended questions at the end of the survey to ask parents uh, about their specific situation if they wanted to comment on it. And those were the kinds of things uh, that parents were highlighting, that kids felt more comfortable at home, that they weren't being bullied anymore. Um, but it, it's still a, a relatively small proportion. And, and similar to it, what Peter was mentioning, it it's a concern when they do transition back, especially after having been off school for six months. So, Ronald, would you anticipate that that is only short-term better? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, kids are going to have to go back to school. So is that short-term better or maybe long-term better? No, I think this is really a short-term effect we are seeing. And if you really think about that children have been isolated for six months, it's, going to, it's actually going to be a challenge for all the children to get back into a routine. And even though a minority of children have done maybe better without uh, the stress in school, just imagine if there would be isolated for months and months and months uh, reintegration into social behavior, into interactions would be exponentially more challenging. Hmm. Let's do a few more results here from the Ontario Parent Survey. Sheldon, uh, page three, graphic number two. Thank you. There we go. Caregivers reported high levels of concern for the following. Uh, nearly half managing their children's remote learning. Oh, yeah. Uh, more than half managing screen time, which is a perpetual problem regardless of pre or post pandemic. Uh, almost half managing their child's anxiety and stress. About a third managing their child's behavior. And again, almost half maintaining household routines, organization and meals. Uh, OK, Andrea, let's if we can dig a little deeper down into these. Uh, were parents more specific about the nature of the difficulties they were having on all these different metrics? Yeah, so it didn't come out in any of the specific questionnaires other than the statistics that you showed. But again, with the open ended questions, we were finding um, consistent themes that were emerging in terms of parents really struggling, having to all of a sudden uh, balance being a, a parent, uh, an employee in many cases, and now a teacher in terms of managing the remote learning. So that affected parents in terms of, and sometimes multiple children that they had to organize in terms of uh, the distance learning as well. So I think it was just a, a real, stressor in the household in terms of trying to manage all of those things and manage routines and parents um, sort of relaxing uh, screen time rules but feeling a lot of guilt about that. Hmm. Uh, so those were some of the consistent messages that we were seeing in, in the text responses. Peter, how strong a, a sense of the damage done to children by being out of school for so long do you think your profession currently has? Well, I think we have a real problem. I mean, there is a fair bit of literature uh, emphasizing how resilient kids are in the context of disaster. Um, but this is a unique uh, situation where the social isolation that Ronnie mentioned has gone on for a long time. We don't have a lot of experiences about that. Uh, and it does suggest that this could have long-term consequences unless we begin to repair 
the social isolation that the kids have experienced over the last six months or so. Can we talk, uh, Ronald, about how increased screen time is um, affecting either positively or negatively uh, children right now in the province of Ontario? What are you finding? So I think we need to first start that pre-pandemic, uh, scientists from across the world, including our own scientists from SickKids and Unity Health, have shown that screen time is already having a negative impact on children. And now I just want you to practically think it through that children, or at least some children, and even moving forward, will now sit for hours in front of the computer because they need to teach, they need to be taught, and need to learn. Mm -hmm. And if they then keep isolated from their friends, their only way to interact with them is through either social media and FaceTime or the phone. So we are dealing again with screen time. So we are now looking at a number of children who may sit in front of any type of screen for six to eight hours per day. So we are just exponentially accelerating and increasing the problem that we already had with screen time before the pandemic started. Could I get you then, Ronald, to offer the parents who are watching this some advice? Because, of course, at some point over the last few weeks, every parent had to indicate to his or her school board, uh, my kid is going to go back or my kid is not going to go back. Uh, all things being equal, if you're reasonably assured that school is a pandemically safe place to be, is there any question but that the kids should be going back? I think by and large, I would say kids should be going back to school. But it is, at the end of the day, a very individual decision. Every family has to look what their school is able to put in place in terms of the bundled uh, measures in order to uh, mitigate risk from infection as much as possible, and also look at their own family situation as, as much as possible. By and large, I think if parents can get comfortable with the idea of sending their children back to school, then that should be a priority. But there are so many other measures that come into place here that generally recommending this without an individual approach uh, would be the wrong. Hmm. Andrea, we, we, we've sort of been focusing on right now uh, children missing their friends as, you know, the biggest problem that they're dealing with right now. But of course, the, the isolation during this pandemic uh, goes well beyond friends. Um, grandparents, for example, or older relatives are people or, or friends of parents, for example, uh, who might have been a part of kids' lives are are probably not now because of the pandemic. And can you help us understand how that might be affecting young people today? Yeah, we did um, look at whether or not certain households were multi-generational households because um, we had some of that data in terms of household composition and we didn't find really any differences in terms of that. But again, with some of the text responses, a very consistent theme that was coming out was separation from family and isolation from uh, other extended family members and the impact not only on the child but on the caregivers themselves and losing all the community support so losing school and other supports in the community but also losing that contact and support from extended family members that also might provide some caregiving relief 
um, was a, a consistent message that came out uh, with the survey as well. So as much as kids may complain about going to visit their grandparents, they actually do miss them when they can't see them? I think so. <laughs> Absolutely, it's the same, yeah. Good it's to the know. Same with, it's the same with school. They complain about school, but now they miss school. <laughs> Interesting, okay. Let's, um, Sheldon, let's go to graphic three here if we can, because we're, um, we're going to show some more results from the uh, Ontario Parents Survey. Uh, this is not just on the kids, but on the, on the parents of the kids. 34% reported some loss of income. 46% reported that a household member had applied for financial help offered by the federal or provincial government. Uh, so that's a lot of people obviously covered off during the course of this pandemic. And let's go to the next one, graphic four. 57% of caregivers met the criteria for depression. 57% and 30% of caregivers reported moderate to high levels of anxiety. Okay, let's get into this. Uh, Ronald Cohen, how does this affect children? So thank you actually for sharing and showing these data because I think it tells us that children don't live in their own isolation. They're obviously part of the whole family. And the anxiety exists all in society, and that translates to some of the anxiety within the family. I mean, you can probably imagine there's no single household uh, in Canada who hasn't been speaking about the coronavirus all the time. And then if you add on additional stresses like financial instability or potential uh, problems with going back to work, and now with the kids going back to school, we need to really look at this as the children, as part of the family, and as we try to address the anxiety levels over the next few months particularly, it is the children, but it's also their parents, and we need to support them as much as we support the children. Peter, that's very interesting because I, I, I suspect there's a lot of people who assume that kids live in their own world and their own bubbles, the walls of which are so firm uh, you know, they're oblivious to what's going on with their parents. But this suggests that that's not the case. Do you want to weigh in on that? Oh, absolutely. The, the, the single most important factor uh, in protecting children's mental health is the mental health of their parents. And, you know, if there's uh, one thing that we, one message we could give to parents as they're making this transition is to look after themselves, to make sure that they have a plan, that they're, engaging their social supports that uh, you know whatever they can do to make sure that their mental health is okay that's going to be really important in supporting their kids well let me get you to follow up with with some of the very disturbing things we're hearing which is of course things like domestic abuse being up marital problems being up divorces being up all as a result of this sort of forced quarantining right now um, are frontline workers uh, on the lookout for these signs well, this is, the, to me, one of the great tragic ironies of this pandemic is that while we know the rates of mental health concerns have been going up and these traumatic events that you're talking about have also gone up, actually the demand for services has gone down. So mm -hmm. there's, uh, you know, people are not coming for mental health services to the usual places, the family doctor or community mental health organizations or our clinics in the hospital because they're worried about, you know, the pandemic and getting ill. Now, I think that's beginning to change. I hope it's beginning to change. But there's this gap between the need and 
uh, getting the services, and that gap has widened uh, over the course of the pandemic. Ronald, I presume parents are watching this right now, and I wonder if you would give them some advice as to some of the behaviors that their children may be demonstrating that they should be concerned about. So I would like to start before I go into some specifics by encouraging all the parents to speak to their children openly about what might be scary for them, but even for themselves. I think the most important thing is to have open, transparent conversations and accept that these are very challenging different times and it's okay to be anxious about various aspects of the current life. I think some of the things uh, parents should probably, in terms of soft signs, looking for are what about the sleeping behavior of their children? Because the routine has been interrupted. What are around irritability patterns, patterns of sadness and, and, and frustrations, things that uh, are not as obvious uh, of a problem, but if they are either in isolation or together uh, uh, become apparent in your child, then I think that's the time where you really need to focus on your child, try to find out what might be going on in terms of what is your child worried about? Is it something about school? Is it something from your home? Is it about the family, the grandparents? So some of these soft signs, uh, I would ask parents to be a little bit more alert about than usual. Well, can I do a quick follow up on that? Because, and I'm really not trying to be a smart aleck here, but, but um, you know, every teenager fights with his or her parents. Every teenager gets irritable. Every teenager at some point, almost everyone skips school or gets in trouble at school or makes their parents crazy about something. So how do you know what the difference is between the typical, yes, that's my teenager being a teenager versus, oh, this is something more serious and it's related to the pandemic? So obviously it's very different. There is no uh, black and white answer to this. But I do think that what parents have described to us through surveys and even in, in, in our conversations with parents is that some of the behaviors uh, have changed a little bit. So I don't think you would necessarily expect your child or your teenager to have the typical rebellion, uh, antagonistic behavior, but show other forms of uh, irritability, maybe being less patient around things that they usually have been patient with. So I think while there is no black and white answer, but I think as parents, you know your children and you see that something might be just a little different than it was before. Hmm. Andrea, of course, it's back to school this week and next and the week after. Staggered starts for young people here in the province of Ontario. And I wonder if, well, let's put it this way. It's all going to be different, right? They're going to be wearing masks, a lot of them, who never had to before. They're going to be in bubbles as never before. They're going to be further apart from their students and teachers as never before. It's all going to be really, really different. Uh, what should parents be on the lookout for in terms of behavior of their children that should uh, raise their eyebrows if necessary? Um, I think similar to what Ron was talking about, especially for the kids who parents may have thought were doing actually better, um, but any kind of school refusal, any kind of anxiety specifically about going to school, um, 
And then similar to what both Ron and Peter were saying, it needs to be an open conversation so that parents are recognizing some of these signs in terms of any anxieties that the children might be having that might not be expressed even in terms of uh, verbal uh, kind of things, but more like behaviors. So it might be disrupted sleep, it might be uh, the acting out behaviors, it might not be wanting to go to school at all. And it's, you know, parents need to be recognizing the signs, I think, and also just having open conversations and trying to get at what what is the underlying kind of cause of their child's behavior. Well, a lot of this has been posed as advice for parents, but uh, Ronald, maybe I can ask you to offer some advice to students here. And in doing so, I mean, here are some of the notes that we've seen from young students already. Here's uh, Anaya, age eight. Who will we play with at school? Another one. Hi, my name is Aiden. My question is, how are kids supposed to eat lunch if they are wearing masks? Haboon, age 11, asks, how safe is it to go back to school? You know, there is a concern in these questions from students because of the unprecedented nature of the school they're about to attend. Uh, how about some advice for returning students? So I encourage all the students to do what I did with my own son uh, this week and just talking about and accepting that school is going to look very different than it looked before the pandemic. And that is necessary and it's okay that it looks different. And I think it's important that anything you see or experience at school is something you should speak to your parents about and have an open dialogue about this because some of this will look different. And there is maybe one point I also would like to make here. At some point, there will undoubtedly be cases in our schools. And I think it's really important that we do not start some blaming around this, have an open conversation about it, have the necessary support for teachers and students in place so that people, the children or the teachers don't feel guilty about that there's a positive case in school. That doesn't necessarily mean that the safety measures were not working. We are going to see this and we need to make sure that we protect our children and the teachers from a certain amount of guilt that undoubtedly everybody will feel, but it's okay that that will happen and we will have the public health measures in place to keep everyone as safe as possible. And the last comment I'm quickly make is, I'm trying to reassure all the children from a children's perspective, by and large, COVID-19 does not make children very, very sick. Only a very, very small number of children get really sick from this, mm -hmm. which is also reassuring for the children. Yeah, Peter, could you follow up on that? Because to be sure, there will be COVID-19 cases in schools at some point. We're not going to have perfection here. And when that happens, how should children react? Um, they should talk to their teachers um, and find out you know, what does this mean? That teachers should be very much engaged in a conversation about uh, the pandemic and um, illness. And if one of their uh, classmates gets ill, for example, you know, they should try and connect with him or her on social media or in other ways, keep the, keep the routine about school going as much as possible, send homework, etc. Try and normalize it as much as, as uh, possible because as Ronnie says, the severity of the illness is going to be minimal um, in, uh, in most cases. Andrea, I'd like to ask you about bullies. 
Bullies exploit everything to bully. And I wonder what the advice ought to be either to teachers or parents or students right now um, to make bullies just a little less powerful in what they do right now. That's a tough question. So are, are you specifically talking about in terms of the COVID-19 kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, I can it- totally imagine. Exactly. I can totally imagine some bully uh, who might have uh, you know, wanted to tease somebody about their weight or their skin color or whatever. Now, uh, you know, screaming epithets about, oh, you're COVID infected, this, that or the other thing. How do we deal with that? Yeah, I think that um, teachers need to be, as with all bullying situations, very aware of these behaviors and if they're occurring um, in the playground or whatever and have conversations with uh, both the bully and the the students about that COVID-19 really either getting it or um, testing positive or needing to be tested for it is is not, it doesn't make that person uh, it, it's not a negative thing because it, 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 anybody could really get it. Um, so I think that the teachers just have to be very aware of it and have just open conversations like they would with any other circumstance. Gotcha. Peter, last question for you. If we do this well, is there any reason to believe that there won't be long-term adverse effects on children because of COVID-19? Uh, yes, if we do this well, Uh, which to me means a coordinated national response uh, to this, a strategic response to this, uh, then I think we can be reassured that the risks will be uh, minimized uh, because kids are resilient um, uh, as long as we implement and enforce the protective factors that we know can make a difference. And I would love to see all the provinces get together on this and develop a strategic plan. Amen. Can I thank doctors Andrea Gonzalez, Ronald Cohn, and Peter Zatmary for coming on to TVO tonight and sharing your very expert views on this. We appreciate it so much. Stay safe. Be well. Until next time. Thank you so much Great for having us. Great to be with you. Thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.